Once you understand what the founders were thinking about when they wrote the First Amendment, it is a lot easier to understand it and to see how so many people get it so wrong today. I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. Don't miss an episode of this program. If you go to firstlibertylive.com and click on the blue subscribe button, we'll send you a reminder every time a new episode comes out. That way you won't miss a thing. It's easy. Just click on that subscribe button, and we'll be in touch. Richard Turnbull is a senior fellow with us. First Liberty has something called the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. And he's going to be speaking to some of the students we have here this summer over the next few days. And I wanted to give you a few highlights from his resume to explain why we wanted to talk to him about the things we're going to talk about today. Now, first, you have a degree in economics and accounting, and you started out your career as an accountant. And then you received a PhD in theology, University of Durham, yep, am I correct? Right. And, and you were ordained into the ministry with the Church of England, which is what we're going to talk about here in a bit. Uh, you served in pastoral ministry for, for several years, and then for a time you even headed up the Evangelical College at Oxford which I did not know there was an evangelical college at Oxford, so I learned something new today. And currently, he is the director for the Center for Enterprise Market, Markets and Ethics. Hi, Richard. Hi, Stuart. It's great to be with you. Those are just the highlights. There's a lot more that you've done. You're an interesting person, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today. I, the First Amendment specifically forbids Congress from making any laws regarding the establishment of religion. And I suspect that a few of those founders were thinking about the Church of England when they were writing those words down. Help us understand what it is that makes the Church of England different from any denomination that we know about here in the, in the States. Sure. Uh, Stuart, it, it, it's great to be with you, and uh, what a great question. And it's a good starting question, isn't it, about and, the, uh, uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution, that would be no church establishment. Yeah. Uh, and I think they were thinking of the Church of England, because the Church of England is what is called in the UK an established church. Well, what does that mean? What does uh, that mean? Exactly, what does <laughs> that mean? Uh, and the most important thing to say, it does not mean a state church. So the church does not receive any money from the state. Uh, the, church, the state is not allowed to interfere in the life of the church. Okay. And although the prime minister or the queen officially uh, announces the appointment of bishops, uh, the, 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 the protocols are that they can only announce the name that's supplied by the church. Okay. Well, that's one side of it. But there is another side. And it does mean that 26 of the bishops of the Church of England sit in our upper house. It's not quite like the Senate, but it's the nearest equivalent okay. uh, to the Senate. And so, so in Parliament, they're in Parliament, as if they're part of what we would uh, call Congress. Absolutely. Okay. And that means they can take part in political comment and debate. It's usually disastrous. I'm just, descri <laughs> I'm just describing the politics, circumstances. Politics is far more fun in the UK. We'll just establish um, that. So, you know, there's this idea of, uh, you know, speaking truth to power, this idea of contributing to the fabric of the nation. And I, I have mixed views about it. So there are parts of it that I absolutely accept is a positive. Yeah. But there are also negatives, and I suspect that's what your founding fathers were thinking about, the freedom, the liberty, and, and so and, on. And the key here is, as an established church, competing churches are put at a real disadvantage, uh, That right? is definitely true. So, for example, if you are uh, one of the 26 bishops of the Church of England sitting in the upper chamber, where are the Roman Catholics? Where are the Baptists? Where are the Presbyterians? Well, where are the Jewish? representatives, yeah. they're not there in that 
uh, category. But of course, one of the reasons for that is just how different the Church of England is uh, from many of the other denominations that we know. And the Church of England, for better, for worse, dominates the religious landscape in, in the UK. And it encompasses everybody from committed conservative evangelicals like myself yeah. uh, through to really people approaching Roman Catholicism, liberalism, and so on. Of course, you can see that that's can be that's a, quite a that, that wide can, range that of that can ideas. be a complexity as yeah. you can imagine. But the conservative uh, evangelical group in the Church of England is is quite strong and has quite an influence. So when the founders were writing about uh, prohibiting the establishment of religion, they were not thinking about, uh, say, a prayer over a loudspeaker at a football game or a high school senior sharing about her faith at graduation. That's not what they had in mind. Absolutely, absolutely. They were just more concerned about that sort of independence from the, from the state, that independence from uh, the government, uh, not uh, the restrictions of the freedom to exercise your faith. That First Liberty is a nonprofit law firm that exclusively does religious freedom cases. It's, it's all we do in the U.S. So I want to get an idea from you what the challenges are like in the U.K. Sure. when it comes to religious freedom. Sure. Are, we, are you facing sure. some of the same issues that we are? Uh, we are, indeed. And uh, I'm not sure whether it's uh, encouraging or worrying when one discovers that so many of the cases are very similar. Uh, in the UK as in the US. I chair the board of an organization called the Christian Institute, which really does similar sort of work in the UK to First Liberty hmm. uh, here in the States. Yeah. What are the sorts of areas that are sort of coming up at the moment? Uh, open air preaching is significant in the UK. So a, a preacher will stand in a, in a downtown area and will begin to preach from the Bible. All too often the police just move that person on or arrest that person without any understanding of the law. Wow. And so we've had to fight cases to gain compensation and apologies from the police uh, for doing that. Now, clearly, sometimes uh, individuals in that situation are, you know, then challenged by a member of the public. What does the Bible teach about, you know, sexuality or divorce or abortion? And the faithful preacher will explain what the Bible teaches about those things. And again, a complaint is then made. The police who rarely understand the principles that uh, there is a freedom, to, it is not illegal to preach from the Bible in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, will then often intervene uh, and the case has to be fought. So that's one group of cases. Let me give you one other sure. group of cases, if I, if yeah. I, if I may. Um, and, and that's sort of employment-related cases. And they vary from an individual who might wear a cross on their jacket and is fired from their workplace. Yeah. An individual, uh, this is going back a few years, an individual put a palm cross on their, in, their, in their van in their, uh, which was owned by the city council. Okay. Uh, and uh, the council fired them from their job. People putting private messages on their own personal Facebook Sounds which familiar. their employer, does this sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah, which the employer says that contravenes, you know, that constitutes hate crime uh, and, and so on. And we had a particularly prominent case uh, recently uh, where a employee, the chief executive of the, one of the largest, well, the largest grant-making trust in Scotland, 
was fired simply because the chair of the board disagreed with the position of the church he belonged to on matters of sexuality. And we won that case. Huh. Um, and I will, can I tell you about one more? Oh, please do. Because this is the most shocking uh, case I've ever, ever come across. It's going back uh, uh, probably three years, four years now, but it of such significance. Um, we don't have a federal system in, in the UK. We have a unitary system. But in the last 50 years, there has been some move towards a federal system, which means that the, uh, uh, Scotland, for example, has its own government with certain responsibilities. Right. Maybe a bit like a state government uh, here. Okay. And uh, the Scottish government introduced what was known as the Named Persons Bill. Well, it sounds yeah. innocent enough. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and their proposal was that every single child in Scotland would have a state-appointed named person. Wow. A st exactly. <laughs> okay. A state-appointed uh, guardian who would report on all matters relating to that child. A complete overthrowing of family life. A Holy cow. That's, that's authoritarianism at uh, the best, is, highest level. It is absolutely scandalous. It was. In fact, it was so scandalous we did manage to put a coalition of people together yeah. to oppose it, and we won the case. It was thrown out in the highest court in Scotland, in this instance, the highest court, which is called the Court of Session, yeah. um, as, a, as a completely infringement upon the liberty of the individual. And uh, we received a cheque for, uh, for the legal expenses and uh, I enjoyed that moment. <laughs> I mean, not a personal check, obviously. But, you know. Why is religious freedom such a, a foundational idea for any free nation? Why does that have to be part of our, our founding ideas in order to operate as a free country? Yeah. So religious freedom, political freedom, and economic freedom belong together. And if you interfere with any one of those freedoms, you're interfere you are interfering with the very nature of the person that God has created. So when God created us in Genesis 1 and 2, as uh, uh, well, Genesis 1:27, in terms of created in His own image, He gave us dignity and He gave us freedom. He placed the man in the Garden of Eden to work, to create, uh, to innovate. Uh, and to combine all of those resources uh, for, the, for the welfare and flourishing of the people. So if you interfere with the political freedom, if you interfere with their religious freedom to worship God, and if you interfere with uh, economic freedom to prevent that person operating, you are preventing the flourishing of the people whom God has created in his own image. So you must fight, you, you can't just say one of those don't matter, they all matter. And, they, and, and if you lose one, the others are, are not far behind. Uh, precisely, <clears throat> absolutely. Uh, this summer we have a group of students with us here at the building uh, to attend something that we call the Shaftesbury Fellowship. It's part of the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, which is a, a think tank, for lack of a better word, uh, yeah. part of First Liberty yeah. Institute. That's what you'll be speaking at. It's an opportunity for these young people to learn about the intersection of religion, culture, and democracy. Uh, what will you be telling them? Yeah, well, what are you going to be sharing with them? I'm going to be sharing with them about a significant uh, figure in uh, English history called Lord Shaftesbury. Who happens who, to be right over your shoulder. Who happens to be right over my shoulder. Because <laughs> you wrote a biography about him. But probably most of your viewers have never heard of. And yet they will have heard, I guess, 
mostly, of William Wilberforce. There was a famous movie a few years Indeed. back that helped us out with um, that. And Shaftesbury really comes immediately after Wilberforce, but he's actually a more deeply significant figure huh. in the history of evangelical history in, in England. What do we need to know about Yeah, well, what do you need to know is he was in Parliament for 60 uh, years, uh, through almost all of his life. He was passionate about voluntary Christian education. He was passionate about the teaching of the Bible. He was passionate about wanting to improve the conditions of society with churches and Christians collaborating together in order to bring about, uh, to found schools, to found employment and, and, uh, and so on. And yes, he also, you know, sponsored legislation to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable. But the interesting thing is he understood the limits of government. So he said, yeah, there's a role, but there are limits to that. Uh, can I tell you one story about him? I'd love to hear it. So uh, he went in the mid-1860s into, uh, no, sorry, it wasn't the 1860s, it was 1848. I'd got my year wrong. Uh, 1848, he was taken by a, a London city missionary who was uh, someone who was employed to take the gospel to the poorest people in London. And he took, well, I mean, you can see the picture. He looks like an English lord, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He took this English lord into the depths of the deepest slum in London. Wow. 20,000 people. Criminality, uh, immorality. Poverty. Uh, poverty, everything uh, was there. And this uh, city missionary called Thomas Jackson had gathered together nearly 400 of the worst criminals in London. And Lord Shaftesbury uh, met with them. He did two things. He preached the gospel and he established and founded schemes of self-help, training, emigration, all sorts of things in order to help them lift themselves to a better life. The two things, preach the gospel and provide the opportunity for self-help, self-betterment, self-improvement. My understanding is he also did a lot to move children out of basically slave labor into education, uh, right? Absolutely, and the, his passion for children was one of the key characteristics and features, and children were uh, uh, sent up chimneys to clean them oh. as young as four or five, and they, many died. They got stuck, they were ill-treated, uh, children were sent down the mines to work at the age of seven, eight, nine, uh, and Shaftesbury said, you can't do this in a Christian country. You can't do, this is satanic. Those are the words he used. And so he campaigned over 30 years uh, for, the, uh, for the prevention of those, of those evils. And this, this brings together the thought of someone who's in the political sphere who clearly is a politician. I mean, he's, he's in parliament for six decades. Yeah. But he also brings in Christian ideology to influence the politics. What's the right way to put those two things together? Yeah, so he was converted in 1825, very soon after he entered Parliament. Uh, became a committed evangelical. Uh, committed, yes, to the Church of England, but also to working with all sorts of, you know, other evangelicals from other Christian traditions yeah. and so on. And he saw no contradiction between his faith and his responsibilities in public office. And his view was we need to challenge the evils that we see in our nation. We need to stand for our Christian convictions. He was a very close friend of Charles Spurgeon, um, the great sort of Baptist preacher yeah. uh, in, in London at the 19th century. And I'll tell you this story. I found this 
letter when I was doing my research for this book, an original letter that had never been found before. Huh. And it was a letter from Spurgeon. Uh, it was an exchange of correspondence yeah. between Spurgeon and Shaftesbury. And Spurgeon was 50 in 1885. It was the year that Shaftesbury died. He wrote to Shaftesbury saying, I want you to come and preside over my birthday celebrations. Shaftesbury said, no, you don't want me. I'm too old. <laughs> I'm getting to the end of my life. Spurgeon writes back, I want you. I want you in the chair for this celebration. And this is the words he used, because you, like me, are a representative of good old-fashioned evangelical doctrine. Wow. So there's Shaftesbury. He, he was someone then who saw a vital connection between public life and Christian thinking Absolutely. brought them together, brought them to a country, and it brought good to the nation. Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better myself. He saw no, no contradiction. Those things were not to be separated. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't sort of, you know, let's be pious on a Sunday, and on Monday, well, it doesn't really matter. We'll just go to the office. Yeah. Hi, anything else you'd like to share before I let you go? I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been great to be with you, uh, Stuart, and uh, just really... Thank you for saying my name right, by the way. <laughs> Nobody ever says my name right. Say it again, let me hear it. Yes, Stuart. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> just, just my thanks and best wishes to both First Liberty and also all, all your, your viewers. And uh, I, it would have been great to have talked longer, and I hope that your viewers have enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate your input. It's great chatting with you today. And, and to learn more about this Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, you can go to crcd.net. That's .net. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the text that goes along with this video to help you find it. We will see you next time right here on First Liberty Live.